Amen. Amen. Here in Matthew 9, Jesus continues on his healing spree. You've heard of a death spree or a killing spree, right? But Jesus is on a healing spree here. Earlier, he heals the woman that has had a flow of blood for 12 years. Many doctors, all her money, no one could heal her. Jesus heals her by just a mere touch of his garment. Then he goes on to heal and raise a 12-year-old girl back from the dead. And now as Jesus leaves Jairus' house, it says in verse 27, when he departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. It's interesting because Jesus heals blindness more than any other physical malady within Scripture. Blindness, scholars tell us, was very common in this time period. And especially within this area in Israel, because of the bright sun of the Middle East. Right? They didn't have any sunglasses or any tints or anything like that. Also very bad hygiene practices, germs and bacteria getting in their eyes causing blindness. There was also known flies which carried infections which would also lead to blindness. The high poverty rate, the constant dust in this area. There were many people that were blind. And these two men were following after Jesus. How? We're not sure, but how difficult this must have been. Right? And in our day and age, we make it as easy as we can for the blind. You have Braille on certain doors. You have Braille in public places. On the corner of the sidewalks, you usually have those yellow pieces of plastic with the little bumps there to let blind people know, hey, this is the end of the sidewalk. Beware. But in this time period, there was no help for the blind. And they're following Christ. Perhaps they had some friends helping them. Perhaps they were out on their own, just groping at the walls, crawling on the floor, just seeking after Jesus, calling him the son of David and pleading for mercy. These men were blind, but they were seeking after Jesus Christ. And they call him the son of David. This is a messianic title, the title given for the Messiah, the chosen one, the Savior of God's people. Perhaps these men being reminded of the promise that David was given. After David wanted to build the Lord a house, God says, David, you're a man of war. You've shed too much blood. You can't build me a house. But David, I'll tell you what, I'm going to build you a house and the Messiah is going to come from your seed. And these men calling him Jesus, son of David. Perhaps they were mindful of King David's mercy upon Mephibosheth. This lame man that had no right to be alive, yet David showed him mercy and brought him into his own household. There's a few different prophecies in Isaiah, but in Isaiah 35, verse 3 through 6, we get one of these promises, one of these prophecies for the Messiah. And in Isaiah 35, verse 3, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. Now, what kind of vengeance is God going to have here? He's going to come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap as a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. There's few prophecies throughout Isaiah that the Messiah will heal the eyes of the blind. 
And perhaps these two blind men, after hearing of all these miracles, all of these healings, they believe perhaps this man will have mercy on us. And that's exactly their plea. Son of David, have mercy on us. Mercy. When we cry out to God, are we coming from a place where we're pleading for mercy? Or are we somehow pleading for justice? This is what I deserve. Lord, you should answer my prayer because this is what I deserve. Lord, you should answer this prayer because I put in this amount of work. Lord, you should answer this prayer because I deserve it. The Lord is not quick to answer prayers like that. The scriptures come up often as of late in our Bible studies. But Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It speaks of a poverty that if we don't beg. If someone doesn't answer our pleading. We will suffer and die in the night. We need to beg and plead that God would answer our poverty. Charles Spurgeon says their sole appeal was to mercy. There was no talk of merit. There was no pleading of their past sufferings or their persevering endeavors or their resolve for the future. But Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. He will never win a blessing from God who demands it as if he had a right to it. Is that what our prayer life looks like? Lord, this is my right I deserve this. I've done this. Don't you see? Can't you tell? Look at what all I've been through. The Lord is not quick to answer prayers like that. But thank God that we serve a God who in Ephesians 2 verse 4 tells us a God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. Our God is full of mercy. And if we come to him pleading for mercy, he's going to answer that prayer. But if we come with a prayer of pride, James 4 verse 6 tells us that God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. These two men don't say, Lord, we deserve this. Lord, look at what we've been to. Or making a plea deal. Lord, if you answer my prayer, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z for you. No, it's Lord Please have mercy on me. The only thing I deserve is death and hell. But Lord, please have mercy on me. Then in verse 28, it says, And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Now if two blind men were pleading for you in the middle of the road, what would you do? I think most of us, we would go to them. It seems Jesus, he goes into a house. Jesus is almost playing peekaboo with two blind men, right? (laughs) Zach, I thought you said he was rich in mercy. This, This seems cruel. It seems like he's messing around with these two guys. What is going on here? Jesus doesn't make it any easier for these men. He goes into a house waiting and testing them. They're crying out for mercy, but God still makes it. Jesus still makes it perhaps just one more step in the process. Why would Jesus go into the house? I think there's three main reasons why. Number one, to not draw an even larger crowd. If you remember the context of everything going on here, Jesus arrived to Capernaum and there was already multitudes waiting for him. And the multitudes kept growing and growing. If you remember Jairus trying to get Jesus to his house, there's so much people that they're being compressed in the crowds of people. 
So Jesus, trying to not draw a crowd after so many healings, wants to do this healing in private as he did so many of them. The second reason why Jesus would go into the house, I believe, is to test their faith. Do they really trust him? Do they trust in who he says that he is? Oftentimes we don't pray prayers or we don't believe, we don't trust in God because we're holding on to our past. We're holding on to how someone has treated us. We're holding on to what someone else has said. We're holding on to, oh, hey, I don't deserve this. This is never going to happen. This is, not, this is how I grew up, so this can never happen. Jesus tests their faith and goes into the house. And the last reason why I believe is to test their perseverance. To test their perseverance. Were they willing to persevere just a little bit more to seek this son of David? And oftentimes in scripture, it seems as if perseverance and persistence is a prerequisite in Jesus' healings and in the work of God in someone's lives. Think of the friends of the paralytic man. Did Jesus make it easy for them? The house was so full, no one could get inside. They, they had to get creative, right? They threw their buddy on the roof. They climbed up after him. They opened a hole in the roof, and then they let him down. It wasn't easy. Jesus waited until Jairus' daughter was dead to go and heal her. The woman with the flow of blood had to press through all the crowds that she was so fearful of. We can think of the rich young ruler. Did Jesus make it easy for him to come and follow him? No, he says, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. One story that always comes to mind is the woman of Canaan. She's pleading with Jesus to heal her demon-possessed little girl. And does Jesus answer right away? No, he tells her, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. This woman is pleading for help, and Jesus calls her a dog. But yet her heart is revealed. She, she's humble. She says, yeah, I don't deserve this, but Lord, there's still crumbs of bread for the dogs at the table. And Jesus, he shows, hey, are we persistent? Do we have any endurance to follow him, or do we throw the towel in the moment things get difficult in following him? These are the actions of those who go away sorrowful, right? It happens to us. You say, you know what? I'm going to start waking up early and reading my Bible. How does that morning go for you? Is it easy? Is it simple? The kids, they're all behaving. The birds are singing. They're landing on your shoulder, right? And as you read your Bible, the sun comes in and you're all, oh, is that what happens? Everything goes out of whack. The kids are screaming. The milk is spilling. Every phone call for every purchase of land is hitting your phone, right? Everything goes loose. The emergency rescues at your neighbor's house, chaos ensues. There is a requirement for persistence in this seeking of the Lord. Jesus says to them, they persevere, they're persistent, they come into the house, and then Jesus says to them, do you believe that I am able to do this. They're just asking for mercy, but he says, hey, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they say to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. They go from calling him Messiah, son of David, to now bringing it and making it personal. Yes, Lord. 
Yes, master. Yes, commander. I believe you can do this. Now, word of faith movements, they take this and they twist it completely out of context. Faith does not demand that God needs to act and intervene in a situation. Faith reveals that we have the capacity to receive God's work and moving in our lives. David Brown says, we do not receive a cure proportioned to our faith, but we receive a cure as granted to our faith. It's not according to our measure that we're given a healing or giving a blessing. It's not that Jesus heals one man and says, hey, you're healed. You're going to have 20-20 vision. Your faith was so great, right? I don't know if it's 20-25 or 20-30, right? You're going to have eyes of a hawk. You, buddy, your faith wasn't so great, so here's these bifocals, right? You'll need these the rest of your life. At least you're not blind anymore, but sorry, buddy, your faith wasn't as big as the guy next to you. Not at all. You see, it's just us allowing God to move in our lives. We trust him. Say, Lord, you, you could do this. But if not, I will still trust in you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They said, hey, our God is able to deliver us. But if not, we're still not going to bow down. We're still going to trust him. We're still going to follow the Lord. And I love scripture. Jesus heals people and says, hey, according to your faith. And he also heals people that had no faith. The paralytic, as we just mentioned. We don't see any faith in him whatsoever. It says Jesus seeing their faith, the faith of the four friends, he healed the paralyzed man. What faith did Jairus' daughter have? She was dead. She had no faith. You can't have faith if you're dead. It doesn't work that way, right? And Jesus healed her. Lazarus, he's dead, no faith. Jesus brings him back from the dead. We cannot put God into a box we cannot say this is the only way that God works. I believe that's why he heals each blind person in a different way. He puts his hands on these two men. Another guy, he's like, okay, let's go outside the city. He spits in the mud. He spits in the dirt. He makes mud and he puts it on his eyes. He healed every blind person in a different way because our God works in miraculous ways. And we will continue to learn more and more about the Lord our God with each passing year from today until the rest of eternity. We will continue to learn more and more about him. Faith does not demand or guarantee God's moving in our life, but it shows that we're available and willing. Lord, if you want to do it, you can. David Guzik says, faith does not guarantee healing for every individual. Yet there are undoubtedly multitudes that are not healed because they lack faith. It's the great balance of all this. We know that Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You want to please God, you got to believe that he is God, and then you got to believe and act in a fashion that reveals that you truly believe he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We see once again there perseverance, persistence, diligently seeking him. Perhaps you have not been healed from certain things in your life because of your lack of faith. 
And for many of us, we can right away go to, oh, physical healings, physical abnormalities. That's not what I'm thinking at all. I'm thinking many of us, we are stuck in sin and we're stuck in our own prison because we don't have the faith and trust in God and in his word to be obedient to what it says. We're holding on to our past, our past hurt, our past upbringing, our past marriage, our past job. And instead of trusting in the Lord and believing his word, we're holding on to this past. Instead of forgiving one another as Jesus Christ has forgiven us, we're holding on to bitterness and resentment towards a family member or a spouse. Instead of just submitting to a husband, we say, that's impossible. You don't know the husband I have, and we don't have that faith and trust in God's word. Instead of believing God's word and loving your wife as Christ loved the church and die for her, oh, she's not worthy. You don't understand this woman. You don't have the faith and trust to do what God has called you to do. So we put ourselves in these prisons. We give these chains back to the enemy and we say, Lord, you can't heal me of this past heartbreak or heartache. Trust in the Lord. Have that faith. Believe his word and follow it. Verse 30 and 31, and their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them saying, see that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Amazing. The first thing these men see is the eyes of Jesus Christ. They've been hearing his voice. They've been hearing about him. But now they get to see him face to face. Once again, we see Jesus was not seeking a crowd. Jesus is not trying to grow the multitudes or have the biggest audience. His heart was just to heal these two men. And a natural reaction to God's goodness in our life should look like Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Is that your heart here? You are so blessed and blown away at God's goodness in your life that you will declare what he has done for your soul. You are so poor in spirit, you realize how blinded you were, how weak you are, how poor you are, and you're saying, God has moved in my life greatly. Everyone's going to find out about this. That's the natural reaction. And what a special relationship these two men must have had, right? They're buddies in their blindness, but now they're both healed together. Dude, you're way uglier than I ever thought you were, man. But I still love you. We're still buddies, right? Again, the, the camaraderie, the friendship that these men must have had in the past, but now even more so in Christ healing their lives. Charles Spurgeon says they were comrades in the dark, but now they are companions in the light. I, I encourage you, find those companions in the light. The, the Christian life, it's worth it, but there are difficult seasons. It's a lot easier it's better when you have companions in the light. That's one of the reasons we have these different events at the church. I know I've been blessed with lifelong friendships. Growing up with someone, we're getting married in similar seasons of life, having kids in similar seasons of life, getting older in similar seasons of life, and it is a blessing. I pray that you would press into the church, press into the people here, and say, Lord, who are the companions that you want me to run with in this life. Matthew chapter 9 verse 32. 
Jesus finishes one miracle, and then the next one happens right away. As they went out, these two guys, they're excited. They're walking away. Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. I, I kind of laugh at that. How can, how can they not tell anyone, right? You want me to pretend like we're still blind, Jesus? What do you want us to do here, right? Do those punk videos on YouTube, right? Oh, he's blind. Didn't know, right? Verse 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. We see, and we're going to see in a moment, the compassion of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, hey, 9 to 5, I'm too tired. Hey, the power's out. I've done too many miracles today. I don't have enough. No, the heart of Jesus. These two guys, in the moment they leave, they bring another man to him who's mute and demon-possessed. David Guzik gives us a little bit of insight here. He says, the Jewish understanding of demon possession was that this man was beyond help. This was because most rabbis of that day thought that the first step in an exorcism was to learn or trick the demon into giving you his name and then you can command him and remove him by knowing his name. But how do you get the name of someone who's mute? Right? You can't. And here, once again, we see the dangers of certain word of faith movements or certain doctrines today. There are some people that think every sickness is because of a demon. Were the two blind men sick because they were demon-possessed? No, not at all. This man, his sickness, it is due to demon possession. But we have to be careful with this. There are some believers, they think every sickness, oh, you have indigestion, it's a demon, be careful. No, man, you should have pepperoni pizza at midnight. That's what happened. <laughs> You're lactose intolerant. You had the milkshake. It's not a demon in you, right? You just fell to the temptation. That's all that happened. And we have to be careful with this. Have to be careful. You get one verse and you form a whole doctrine out of it. Be careful with that. Jesus, he didn't know the name. Some people say, you need to know the name. What's the name? What's the name of the sickness? What's the name of the issue you're dealing with? And then I'll pray for it. Jesus, he has the power. He cast the demon out and the mute spoke. What were his first words? I wonder, right? And the multitudes marveled, saying it was never seen like this in Israel. And family, even when this world and this world's experts say you have no hope, you are beyond saving, you are beyond healing, your marriage is done and over with, your relationship with your kids is over with, you're going to be bankrupt the rest of your life, even when the world and its experts have no hope for us, Jesus can and will still do mighty wonders today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God that ripped the Red Sea in two to save his people and then destroy the Egyptian army. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The very spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in you and in me. Verse 34, not everyone was marveling, but the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. You see, these Pharisees could no longer deny the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. But they couldn't give him the proper respect he deserved. Instead, they said he's casting out demons by the very power of demons. What sense does that make? Satan owns this person. They're filled with demons. So Satan gave him the power to take the demons out of him, even though Satan's the one that put the demons in him. It, it, it makes no sense. But this happens to us in Matthew chapter 10 chapter right next door, Matthew chapter 10, 
Verse 24, Jesus warns his disciples, and he warns us, his disciples today as well. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. He repeats this in John 15 verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And it happens to us. We go through seasons. We've been changed. We've been renewed. We're seeking after the Lord. And your family says, what's happened to you? Are you a part of a cult? What's going on, right? You're seeking the Lord. You're going to church. And they say, what's wrong with you? What happened? Are you depressed? What's going on? Why do you got to start going to church? You go to a marriage retreat. What did you do in your marriage? You got in trouble and now she's making you go to the retreat. What did you do, right? This happens to us today. They can't deny the supernatural power, but they try to give credit to something else. We should be used to it. If they called Jesus Beelzebub, that he was fueled by Satan himself, what will they say about us? Just stand for the Lord. Just live your life saying, Lord, am I right with you? These actions, the things I'm doing, the way I'm treating my spouse and my family, my boss, my job, Lord, is this right in your eyes? Jesus, he didn't crumble into a ball saying, oh, man, they're calling me Satan. That's it. I'm quitting. I don't know how many of you have ever been called Satan before, right? But we quit on just little words. People say mean things, and we quit. I don't know if you've ever been called son of Satan. I think called the mother of Satan. I called something weird ones, right? But we continue on. Don't, don't worry about that. So many believers are so worried about what people say and what people are going to talk about them. Everything's going to be revealed. During the life of David, he was seen as the bad guy. Saul owned the military, he owned the press, he owned the politics, he owned everything. And Saul was saying, David's the bad guy. Yet when we read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we all know who the bad guy is. It's Saul. Just worry about your relationship with Jesus Christ and your conduct. And Jesus is going to take care of your reputation and what people know about you. But we must be about our Father's business. Verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Again, the heart of our Savior. He not only goes to the big cities and their synagogues to teach and preach, but he also goes to the small villages where, where there's a, a few people. Be careful. They say, oh, there's only two people there. I'm not going to, I'm not, that's not worth my time. There's only one, that's not worth my time. I'm only here for the big things God wants to do. Jesus went about the cities and the villages, teaching and preaching and healing. We know that in John 4, 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And God wants to work within large groups of people. And God wants to work one-on-one -on -one in small groups of people as well. 
And we see here that there's a difference between teaching and preaching. And a good healthy church, a good healthy believer, we need both. There's teaching, there's the instruction and instructing in doctrine of God's word. Line upon line, chapter upon chapter, what does this mean, right? Hermeneutics, end times, all this stuff. We, we need that. But we also need preaching. This stirring up, this encouraging, this exhorting to go and do something about it. Do something with the proper knowledge and understanding that you have of God's word. If you have a church that is only teaching, then you just have a bunch of fat sheep sitting in church doing nothing about it, right? But if you're in a church that only has preaching, you have a bunch of people hyped up, but they don't know what they're supposed to do with the hype because they have not been properly taught. We need both teaching and preaching within our lives so that we can know what to do and we can have the strength and encouragement and exhortation to go out and do it. We also see the power of Jesus Christ. He heals every type of sickness and every type of disease among the people. Verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus has had a long day of ministry. Long day, a long season of ministry. And now he sees a huge multitude of people and he's moved with compassion. He's not moved with contempt. He's moved with compassion. Because he sees them that they were weary and scattered. Like sheep having no shepherd. Wearied and scattered. One, uh, the, the word for weary here is harassed. He sees a group of people that have been harassed without a true guide to love and care for them. We know that the religious leaders of this day, they were just harassing people. They just wanted money from people, and they just wanted to guilt people and keep them down. Imagine, you're, you have a sickness in your life, and the religious leaders will say, hey, what sin did you commit to have that sickness? That's just harassment. It's just pushing them down. These people, they don't have anyone to love and care for them. They've been plundered. They've been troubled. They've been left more discouraged and more dejected. And all Jesus sees is a large group of people with so much potential if they only had someone to guide them to the good shepherd. Family, when you see the multitudes, what happens in your heart? Is there contempt or is there compassion? That word compassion, it's a sympathy. It's a pity. Not a pity that you just feel bad for the person, but you're moved with so much pity you have to do something about it. It describes the compassion which moves a man to the deepest depths of his being. And for us today, we say that the, the place of emotion is in the heart. The seat of emotion. Honey, I love you with all my heart, right? In this day and age, they would say the seat of emotion was in the bowels. You can't write as many poems like that. Honey, I love you with all my bowels, right? My bowels move when I think about you. It, it, it doesn't hit the same way. It doesn't hit the same way. But here Jesus is saying to his very core, he's brokenhearted for these people. To his very core, he has a compassion and love for these group of individuals. John Trapp says, this troubled our Savior more than their bodily bondage to the Romans, which was yet very grievous. The Israelites were literally in slavery. 
to the Romans. And what stirred up Christ's heart was their slavery to sin and them being destined to hell if they didn't come to the Lord. Family, what stirs up your heart more? Is it the political situations today? Is it the political injustice today? Or is it multitudes of lost people that are not a part of the fold of the great shepherd? What moves your heart more? Where is there more stirring in your life? Is it politics or is it people's eternal salvation? Jesus is clear. Politics, he didn't really mess with Rome. He was there to usher in the kingdom of God and to save the lost. What moves you with compassion? When you see the lost, are you moved with compassion or are you moved with contempt? Oh, those liberals, right? Those blue-haired people, I can't stand on this, and the third. Are you moved with compassion? Do you see how lost they are? And I got to tell you, this is an area where I lack. I'm really good at apathy. I'm not so good at empathy, right? I'm not so good at empathy. Do we have that empathy? We see people and say, I was just as lost as they were. When you see young people today, are you moved with compassion? Or are you moved with contempt? All right, we, we can forget who we used to be. You see the kids say, oh, look at these haircuts. Look at these clothing, right? What's up with all these boys? They all look like llamas. What's up with the haircuts, right? What, what, what's going on here, right? Do you remember your haircut when you were a teenager? <laughs> Let's pull up that picture for everybody to see, right? Do you remember those days? Are you moved with compassion? I used to have a fro and braids when I was a teenager, right? Do we, are we moved with compassion? Because we can quickly forget the sinners, the despicable sinners we used to be. We can see people broken, lost. They don't know the Savior. And instead of having compassion, saying, Lord, who are you going to use to save them? We just ride them straight off to hell. We're acting more like some of the disciples asking for fire to rain down from heaven and fry them than acting like our Savior with sympathy and pity in the deepest depths of our being. I got to tell you, I drive by FIU almost every day, coming to church, leaving church, dropping my kids off at school, and I moved with compassion as I see so many young people, so many students. Where are you moved with compassion? Where do you see people and say, man, there's so many lost souls here? And it's important for us to know just because we preach Christ does not mean that you are preaching Christ out of a heart of compassion. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. And if this was true in ancient days, it is so much more true today. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. Paul's writing a letter to the church of Philippi. And he tells them, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Not everyone who preaches Christ, not everyone who does church work is fueled by love. Are we fueled by love? The work that we do for the Lord, the service we do for the Lord, is it fueled out of love or is it fueled out of envy, strife, and selfish ambition? 
Do we think that our service is going to now cause God to have to work on our behalf? God, I scratched your back, now you have to scratch mine. Do we think that our church work, it leads us to be right with God? It's only through Jesus Christ that we're right with him. Our service for the Lord needs to be fueled by love. If not, we will burn out or become just like the Pharisees. We'll close now in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. He says to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's been said that church is a lot like a football game. There's 22 exhausted men on the field that are in desperate need of a rest. And there's thousands of people out in the stands that are in desperate need of exercise. May that not be said of our church. May each and every one of us be, what does it say here? Laborers. It's a work that needs to take place. And I don't know when was the last time you did any gardening or weeding in your backyard, pulling crops, doing chainsaw work. It is a labor. And this is what Jesus calls it. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And he sees a field that's ready to be harvested, yet there's no one to harvest the crops. That's how Jesus sees these multitudes. Let's turn to John chapter 4. And once again here, we see the heart of our Savior. His desire, what fueled him, his passion in life. John chapter 4, verse 34 through 38. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap That for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. The heart of Christ is look at the fields. There is a harvest that's ready to be harvested. There's people that want to hear the gospel. There's people that want to be prayed over. There's people that want to learn more about God. But there are too many servants kicking the can down the road. Hey, I'll do it in four months. I'll start serving in the next season of life. Oh, once I get the job, once I have the kids, once I have no kids, once I have grandkids, right? Jesus says, today the fields are ready. Today the harvest is ready. White unto harvest means that the harvest is literally about to spoil if someone doesn't go out there and start picking the crops. I think we've all been there with avocados, right? You have that avocado and it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's not ready, it's not ready. You go out of town for one day. That was the day it was ready, right? You come back, that thing is brown, you got thrown in the garbage, what in the world happened? Jesus is saying the fields are ready to be harvested today. Don't don't kick the can down the road and say, I'm going to start serving him in four months. I'll start doing something for the Lord later on. 
Today is that day. And it's a joy we get to have. And we're going to gather fruit for eternal life. Paul, my love, only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. We, I was at a little men's getaway for Christian businessmen on Saturday. And we were talking about, I was talking about the blessing I have as a pastor that I get to talk with people as they're at the end of their life. You hear their regrets in life. And there's very few regrets about money or job or riches or cars. So a whole lot of regrets when it comes to spouse and kids and family and work for Jesus Christ. What regrets will you have? Start curbing that now. The harvest is so ready it's about to spoil. Go out. And be one of those laborers. Charles Spurgeon says he mourned for the scantiness of the workers. Pretenders were many, but real laborers in the harvest were few. The sheaves were spoiling. The crowds were ready to be taught, even as ripe wheat is ready for the sickle. But there were few to instruct them. And where could more teaching men be found? Jesus says, what's the first thing we should do when there's a harvest that's ready to be harvested? We're to pray. We are to pray. That's the first thing we should do is pray to the Lord of the harvest. That's the joy. The harvest belongs to him. The laborers belong to him. The fruit belongs to him. The sheep belongs to him. We just get to be a part of the ride. Are we praying? Are we moved for compassion for a people group? Or an area that we see a need, are we praying for those people? Because he's the Lord of the harvest. In John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. God the father, he's the vine grower. He's the husbandman. He's the gardener. He's in charge of the harvest. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 through 9 tells us, So then he who plants is anything, nor is he who waters anything. But it is God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters, they're one. And each one will receive one reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. We get to work alongside of him on his field. Are we a part of it? Are we going to be a part of it? May we be ready to pray this prayer. Lord, send more laborers. Lord, there's millions of people in Miami. Lord, send more laborers. We need more Bible-based churches in Miami. Lord, send more laborers. We just have to be ready when we pray this prayer, when we're moved with compassion. Who are the laborers that Jesus sends in chapter 10? The very guys he's telling to start praying. He says, hey, you guys, hey, therefore you should pray. Let's pray. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. And then in the very next verse, it says, he called his 12 disciples to him and he sent them out. We need to be ready. Oftentimes we come to church and, Pastor Zach, you should do this. Hey, this is what the church should do. Hey, this should happen. That should happen. That should happen. All these ideas. Maybe God wants you to do those ideas. No, 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 not that. Not me. Not me. Right? We can think of Moses. Moses knew that the Israelites needed to be saved. He knew they needed to be delivered. But when God says, Moses, you're the guy, he goes, no, 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 not me, Lord. Not me. I can't speak. I stutter. I'm not ready for that. There's pride going on there. Now, we got to be careful. That. There's pride on both ends of the spectrum. When God calls us and we say, no, 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 Lord, I can't do it. I'm not equipped enough. I'm not strong enough. That's pride. 
And then when God calls us and we say, it's about time you called me, right? You know how many things God has done through me, through this man? That's a load of pride as well. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll finish up here. Great chapter. I encourage you when you go home. It's 13 verses. Read it when you go home. But Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has an interaction with God and in God's presence. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is in God's presence and he realizes just how sinful he is. May we, number one, be in the presence of the Lord. We can't be used by God to reap the harvest if we're not in his presence. We have to be in his presence. And what Isaiah notices is that he's acting just like the people around him. You're you're not going to harvest anything if you're acting just like those lost sheep. If you're acting just like them, why are they going to go to you for any advice? Why are they going to go to you for a life change? You are acting just like them. But what happens here? One of the seraphim flew to Isaiah, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. You want to reach the people around you for Jesus? Allow God to take away your iniquity and allow your sin to be purged. Be holy as he is holy. Be that light. Be that salt and light in the world today. Verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Family, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. I think each of us agree our world is so lost, so crazy, the day and age we're going in. But are we willing to go on behalf of the Lord, to be those ambassadors to reach people for him? So let's be in his presence. Let's spend time with him and allow him to fill us to go and reap that harvest. To go and talk with people, to go share with people, to serve at church. May we allow God to use us for his purposes and for his glory. So, I don't know which character you are in this morning study. Perhaps you're that blind man just pleading for mercy. Lord, I need your mercy in this situation. Cry out to him. Perhaps this morning you're that mute demon possessed and somebody dragged you and brought you to the feet of Jesus. Plead for mercy. Or perhaps you're, you've been wrestling, you've had this compassion, or perhaps you've had a lot of contempt, and Jesus is saying, man, you got to check your heart. You don't have a love for people. It is by our love that they will know we are his disciples. Man, just repent, get right with the Lord, but may we go out and do that work for the Lord so we can receive that eternal reward. Hey, worship team, if you can come up, let's all stand, and we'll close with worship. Lord, we thank you so much, Lord. We we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Lord, the loving God that you are, Lord, rich in mercy, rich in kindness and gentleness and grace, Lord. Lord, thank you for the many chances you've given us, God. And Lord, for any of us that need to repent this morning, Lord, help us to be biblical, Lord. Lord, to repent, to confess our sins to you. 
Lord, if need be, to confess our sins to one another, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, help us to be about your business, Lord. Forgive us for being consumed with so much garbage in the world today, Lord. For buying into the noise, from being so earthly-minded that we are of no heaven or earthly good, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us to have eternity printed into our minds, printed into all that we're doing, Lord. Lord, may we truly work and desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So, Lord, we love you. Jesus, we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, if you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front.